God's people, as we all realize tonight, are a redeemed people. And that fact is evident in that they both the Old Testament begins and ends with redemption. First from Egypt and then from Babylon. Now you may be wondering how the Old Testament is ending with this redemption that we're dealing with in the book of Ezra, redemption from Babylon. Well, Chronicles is actually the final book in the Hebrew Bible. And that uh, ends where the book of Ezra begins. So that's the link. And uh, so what I said already, the first great redemptive work of God was delivering his people from Egypt. And then this final, in the Old Testament, this final work of redemption was when he delivered his people from Babylon. And in these events, God prepared the people, his own people, for the great act of redemption through Jesus Christ. So that's the reason why we are studying this book, because it's all about redemption and the purpose and plan of God. And in the fullness of time, the Lord did send his son, but the events in this particular portion before us ensured that there would be a people in the land of Canaan to receive Christ when he came. Ezra's purpose was to give an accurate account of Israel's return from Babylonian exile after 70 years, the rebuilding again of the temple, and the reestablishing of worship. Thus God, in this way, was preparing the Jewish race for the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This prepared the way for God's redemptive purposes to be realized. It meant the people would be back in the land to herald the advent of the promised Messiah. And so the day eventually came when the exiles were able to say, we are going home. I have three simple things that I want to draw to your attention tonight as we think about this subject, just as God planned it. Just as God planned it. In the first place, there is the fulfillment of the word of God. Now, if you look there at verse 1, the decree of Cyrus was issued in order to fulfill the word of God spoken by Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a 7th century prophet. And he was the one who set the time limit of the exile as 70 years. Now, if you'd like to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, just read for yourself to make sure that I'm telling the truth and preaching what's in the Bible. If you look there at Jeremiah 29... And verse 10, notice how the verse begins, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and causing you to return to this place. So this 7th century preacher declared that God would visit his people and that he would bring them out of Babylon. Now he probably lived almost a century after Isaiah. 
So about 150 or 170 years before this, Isaiah named Cyrus as the deliverer of the people of Judah. Now, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 44 to begin with, Isaiah chapter 44, and if you can find the verse 28, well, we'll read verse 27. That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy waters. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Now, Jeremiah, as I said, prophesied in the 7th century. Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied in the 8th century. Now, during the time of uh, Isaiah, his day, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, was carried away into Assyrian captivity. In Jeremiah's day, the people of Judah suffered a similar fate and they were carried away into exile in Babylon. Now, the, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus says that Cyrus was shown these prophecies and was seized by a strong desire to do what had been written. So here's a pagan man, an ungodly man, a man who had uh, no personal faith in Israel's God, and the Lord in his grace seized this man and impressed something into his heart. A strong desire was placed there. And if this account of Josephus is accurate, we need to ask the question then, how did Cyrus know about the words of a Jewish prophet. Well, perhaps it was Daniel. Daniel ministered in the 6th century. So we're thinking about the 8th century, God had a man raised up to prophesy. Then in the 7th century, God had another man, another individual raised up to give further light to the people of God. And then Daniel in the 6th century. And it's very possible that Daniel drew the attention of Cyrus to the words of Jeremiah. Now, we cannot be sure about this, but we do know that Daniel had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in 606 BC. He rose to a high position in the Babylonian court some 70 years before Cyrus came to power. He served under Nebuchadnezzar. He served under Belshazzar and Darius and Cyrus from 606 until 536. That was the year when the foundation of the temple was laid. The third year of Cyrus's reign, according to Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and also Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. Jeremiah's ministry began before the exile and continued uh, among the remnant and Judah after a majority of the people had been carried away into Babylon. Remember when the siege of Jerusalem took place, Jeremiah was spared. The Babylonians uh, looked to him uh, with mercy and compassion because he was telling them to surrender 
because it was the will of God. Surrender uh, to the Babylonians. So obviously Nebuchadnezzar was aware of this. And then later, uh, Dan, uh, later Jeremiah was taken away uh, with uh, those Jews who fled to uh, Egypt. And at some point, I'm not exactly sure when, but he was stoned to death. He and Daniel were contemporaries, one ministering in Jerusalem, the other ministering in Babylon. God had placed Daniel in the right place for the right time to do a work for him. I'm sure when he was 16, 17 years of age, he couldn't understand why he would be carried away to Babylon. But now we see the reason why. God has a purpose in all things, the sovereignty of God. All things working together for good to those that love God. He may not have understood it at the time, but now he can see. He can see the purpose and the plan of God and the whole thing. So there was this preparatory work involved in the matter of the captivity. A man in the 8th century named the one who would be the deliverer of the people of Judah. Next century, the 7th century, Jeremiah talks about 70 years of exile in Babylon. And then you find Daniel in the 6th century. He's living at this particular point of time and he has a word from God as well. So there are three instruments used in this whole plan of God. You have the prediction of Isaiah in chapter 44. A man will be raised up to uh, deliver the Jews. His name is Cyrus. The prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 25 and chapter 29 that the captivity would last for 70 years. And then the praying of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, that God would honor and fulfill his word. And commentators believe that it was 68 years after Daniel had been in the land of Babylon when he discovered the parchment, the, the writings of Jeremiah, he began to read and he realized, well, if the prophet spoke of 70 years, I'm here 68 years. So what did he do? He began to pray. What did he pray for? He prayed that God would fulfill the promise made through Jeremiah and that God would touch the heart of a man named by Isaiah. And so we can see the whole purpose and plan of God working together over three centuries to bring to pass the mind of God and delivering his people. He's allowed them to be carried captive because of their sin. He's chastening them, but now his purposes of grace towards his people. And we can see how God uses his word. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. He's taking the word and he's taking a man who lays hold upon the promise of God. He's coming to plead, O oh God, honor thy word, fulfill thy promise, do what thou hast promised to do. Did God do that? Of course he did. Of course he did. Isaiah spoke of a, the design of the captivity because they had to be disciplined because of their sin. And as I mentioned before, the Babylonian captivity dealt with Israel's love for idols. They never went back to their idols after Babylon. And then Jeremiah spoke of the duration of the captivity, 70 years, a long time. And then Daniel spoke of the deliverance from the captivity. So we can see the fulfillment of the word of God. Over those centuries, Cyrus, 70 years captivity, deliverance, 
God gave a promise and God fulfilled his promise, he kept his word. So that's the first thing that we notice here. The fulfillment of the word of God. Has God changed? Not at all. Not one bit. God still honors his word. He still fulfills his divine purposes and plans. And no king or mighty individual or empire can frustrate the purposes of God. In actual fact, they are working together to accomplish what God has planned for them to do at this time. We may not understand it. We may not be able to delve into the the reasons why. But God is working in our day in the same way. That's why I'm talking to you about what happened then because what happened then is happening now. God has his plan. God has his purpose. And he will not deviate from that. And it doesn't matter how much opposition is placed in a way they cannot frustrate the purposes of God. Then the second thing is the furthering of the work of God. Now, why did God use a pagan king to issue a decree favoring the people of God? Well, verse 1 tells us that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And that word stirred is an interesting word. It means to awaken. It means to arouse. And the same word is translated raised there in verse 5. God had raised uh, to go up to build a house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So we get the idea of someone being awakened. This is not revival. This is not a spirit of reviving in the hearts of the people of God. And certainly this was a time of stirring in the heart of this ungodly man. So the Lord planted the idea in the mind of Cyrus. God was working out his own plan for the exiles in Babylon. He hadn't forgotten about them. Oh, they had to be disciplined, but he had not forgotten about them. That's why he sent people like Daniel and Ezekiel to minister to them while in the land of Babylon. God was merciful. And at the very beginning of the captivity, God sent these people to get good footing in the land and to minister to the needs of those people who would eventually follow them. So he stirred, he stirred up Cyrus to release them because all things work together for good to those that love God. The God who motivated Cyrus to fulfill his design as a control of the nations of the world today and rulers. Wicked men do not hinder his purposes. He governs all history for the benefit of his church. Now, it may be hard for us to see that at times, especially when the heat's on, especially when persecution comes. You think about the three Hebrew friends of, of Daniel, what they had to encounter and experience. Think about what Daniel suffered himself. He was God's man in Babylon. You think about facing the lion's den, and you think about the other three who stood with him so courageous. These represent the people of God today and the problems that we face and will face in the days that lie before us. Now, there's no evidence that Cyrus knew God savingly, even though he favored uh, the people of God. I think, for example, in verse 7, verse 3, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. He doesn't say, my God be with him. No, he's talking about his God. He's not my God, he's your God. He's the God of the Jews, he's not my God. So there's no evidence that Cyrus was a new God savingly, but he did acknowledge the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God 
and they bow to his authority. Isn't this truly amazing that he bows to the authority of Jehovah? And God instructed him to build him a house at Jerusalem. Very specific. And the fact that uh, he wants to build a house is mentioned there in verse 2 and verse 3 and 4 and 5. Now, you can contrast the two great empires, the Babylonian Empire headed up by Nebuchadnezzar and the empire, the Persian Empire, headed up by uh, Cyrus. You think about uh, Nehemiah removed the people. Cyrus treated them completely different. He released the people. Nebuchadnezzar removed the vessels and Cyrus restored the vessels because that's what God ordained and planned for these men to do. Nebuchadnezzar burned the house of God and Cyrus was the man who built the house of God. They were both instruments in the hands of God. Two different men who treated the people of God in two different ways, but they both were the instruments in the hand of God. One was to chasten the people of God. The other was to comfort the people of God. And, and so you can see the balance. There needs to be chastening at times, but at the same time, God sees to it that the people of God are comforted. The migration uh, of the, uh, from Babylon was like the Egyptian uh, exodus all over again. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what the Lord did before, the Lord was able to do again. He delivered his people from Egyptian bondage, and now he's coming to deliver his people from Babylonian captivity. What the Lord did in the past, he's able to do again. Does that not sound right? Does that not sound encouraging to the church of God these times? I think it is. However, at the time of the Exodus, all the nation went back to the promised land. But here, at this particular point of time, only a small remnant risked the journey to travel back to the land of Israel. Now, the Jews have been praying for years that God would turn their captivity. You read Psalm 137 sometime, you can see we hang our harps in the willow tree. We couldn't sing the Lord's song. We're in captivity and bondage. We're looking for the Lord to come to intervene and turn the tide. And now the opportunity arises. You can go home. You're free to go. I don't know how many million uh, they could have been maybe two, two and a half, three million, but this time maybe more. Less than 50,000 took the opportunity to return home. I wonder why. They've been praying for, for years and years for this to happen. And now it, it comes. God has been faithful to his word. It, we, we're released. We can go home. But just under 50,000 took the offer to travel home. Some feared the risk involved in the journey of almost a thousand miles. Others thought to themselves, uh, well, we'd have to start over again. A lot of Jews prospered in Babylon, and that's the reason why they didn't want to leave what they had. And even in that Persian era today, I think there's a, a large Jewish colony there. They didn't like to give up their prosperity. And Christians in this materialistic society face the same temptations. They valued material comforts more than their spiritual heritage. I think that could be said of the Protestant communities today. Forgotten about the goodness of God, his mercy in the past, his 
preservation of our way of life. God has been good and merciful in the past. He's done great things for us. Bill of Rights and so on and the freedom and the liberty to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. But in this materialistic age, it doesn't really matter so much about religious principles nowadays. It's the money. Money talks. There'll be money when we're not here. When we're long gone. There'll be businesses, buildings, everything else. When we're out to meet God. So it's better to redeem the time for the days are evil. So just under 50,000 took up the offer to return home. Uh, the two tribes taken into captivity, Benjamin and Judah, they were there. And some of the Levites, they returned as well. So we can see how God is furthering his work, even through this pagan king, even through this man. And this was his policy because he was a wise man. And he felt that if he could get the people that he had conquered on his side and showed them favor, and made provisions for their worship and their religion and so on, then he would have lasting peace in his great empire. It didn't only happen with the Jewish people, it happened with other groups as well. But our focus is upon God's people because God had planned it this way. So there is the fulfilling of the word of God, the furthering of the work of God, and then there's the financing of the will of God. Did you ever think about that before, how God financed his own will? He always does, you know. Seventy years before this, Nebuchadnezzar had plundered the temple in Jerusalem. He had looted the holy vessels and carried them away to Babylon. He stored them up in one of his rooms or storehouses. And I suppose this was to let people know that his gods were stronger than the God of Israel. And later, these vessels were defiled on the very night that Babylon fell. By the, uh, to the Medes and Persians. Remember Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, he has organized a great feast. A thousand of his lords have been invited, uh, and, and suddenly the, the writing appears on the wall. They are weighing the balances and found one time. And they abused, they defiled the holy vessels. He sent for the vessels to be brought in. They were a drunken orgy. And all the while, Persians were waiting to undermine the city, to lower the river Euphrates and below the gates. And they just marched into the city with little protest or fight. They succeeded and Belshazzar died in that night. So you can see the holy vessels, they were looted and then they were defiled. But then God began to work on behalf of his people and he entrusted the holy vessels to a man called Shez Bazar. I, I think this is another name for uh, Zerubbabel because this could have been a Persian name, it could have been a Babylonian name because that's the way the Babylonians worked. Uh, think about Daniel and so on. Think about Esther and so on. The name changed. And so I think that this man is really Zerubbabel, and we'll deal with that at some later stage as well. So he entrusted these vessels to this man. They were numbered into his hands, and all the way back that journey, 900, 1,000 miles, those precious things were preserved. 
And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were counted into the hands of those responsible for them, for the house of God. So all these vessels, and then the king saw to it that the people received gold and silver and other things for themselves. So God is financing his own work in this way. He he has these vessels restored again. And then there's the gold and the silver and these other things uh, provided for the benefit of, of the people of God. And do we not have here an echo of what happened in Exodus chapter 12, 35, just before the people were delivered from Egyptian bondage, they borrowed, they borrowed from their neighbors all the things that were needful for their journey and for uh, establishing the tabernacle and the wilderness. Can we not see the same thing happening again way back in uh, Egyptian times? God saw to it that he would finance his own wealth and take care of his people. Same thing is happening again. And when God's in the thing, you see, God will finance and meet the needs of those involved in his particular work. The free will offerings for the house of God and then the rest evidently meant for the people who needed to live, who needed to have expenses, and and so on. So God is at work here. And uh, we're told there in verse 4, And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him. God uses helpers. And uh, I had a look at that word help, and I discovered in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Uh, The Apostle Paul mentions different people involved in the service of God, apostles and prophets and teachers. But then comes down halfway through that verse and he mentions helps, helps. And that word simply means helpers or supporters, people who support in the word of God. So you have the apostles, you have the prophets, you have the teachers and other ones. But then you have helps. They are the supporters. They're the people who rally and help. There's another time the word help is found in the New Testament, Acts 27, verse 17. This is a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. Remember the time when Paul was on the journey to Rome and the vessel was in that great storm and the fear that the vessel would be broken up? Well, what did they do at a certain part of the journey? And the sea. We're told here that they used helps. As I said, this word is only found twice here, and in Hebrews 4, verse 16, we read there about help in time of need. Help. Get the word? There it is. And the word that is used there in Acts 27 of the vessel, uh, it was used to undergird the ship by passing a cable or a chain around the vessel to prevent it from breaking up. So they're out there in this great tempest. They're afraid that the vessel is going to be broken up. So they put the chain or the ropes around it to more like tie it together to prevent it going to pieces. It's called frapping, to stabilize or to keep the vessel afloat, to aid or to help. In Numbers uh, 11, the sons of Gershon Uh, Their responsibility, when when the tabernacle was taken down, it was their responsibility to bear it or carry the tabernacle. They were described as helpers. The work of God needs helpers. Our brother was talking about the the mission and those who helped last night. Helped last night. They're helpers. They're encouragers. 
and the work. Every church needs the pastor, the elders, the deacons, and so on. But it also needs helpers. Those who get behind those appointed by God to do a certain work in the church. To bring comfort to them, to aid them, to assist them in the service of God. It makes life a lot easier. And it spreads the burden. I don't believe that everything should be done by a pastor in the church. I believe that God taught Moses this lesson many, many years ago. Delegate, delegate. The preacher has a lot of things that maybe people don't know he has to do way behind the scenes. He's busy preparing messages. He's seeking the Lord. He does a visitation program and so on. Yes, there are times that he shows up at this meeting and that meeting, but the preacher's got to have liberty to do what he has to do best. If he's not delivering the goods on the Sunday, people will complain. So he needs to take time to be holy and to get before God and to seek his face. And that's the reason why people are appointed for this office and that role or something else, a Sunday school superintendent, a children's worker, a leader there, and so on, to take the burden off the preacher, to give him time to do what he needs to do, get before God. And when you get a new man, you've got to look upon this carefully with consideration. Don't overburden him. Don't weigh him down. Give him the liberty to do what he has to do to the best of his ability. And God will bless, but the work needs helpers. And maybe you could be a helper. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to become a helper in the service of God. So the Lord was saying to it that uh, the work would be financed. I smile a minute time when I think of the story of Moses, of how the child was preserved by Pharaoh's daughter, and how... Uh, the mother of Moses was paid family allowance. The first family allowance in history was paid by Pharaoh to the mother of Moses. And then he was educated at the expense of the Egyptians and one day he was going to destroy the Egyptians. I think God has a sense of humor. But the Lord saw to it that those who obey him, how God helps them and cares for them in providing for them. Isn't that an amazing thing what God can do? And here we find even this ungodly king restoring the vessels, but then out of the treasury, providing other means as well for the service of God. Here's evidence of a genuine work of God. So the people of Judah had sinned. They were chastened by being carried away into Babylonian captivity. Yet God did not forsake them or forget them. And at the appointed time, he marvelously intervened to restore them to the land and gave them a work to do for him. You see, see the truth? Just as God planned it. May God bless his word tonight to our hearts for Christ's sake. We'll bow for a time of prayer, please, tonight.